Good morning. When Justin invited me to preach again this summer, uh, I was really excited because I knew we were walking through 2 Samuel, uh, and um, I've always loved all the stories about King David. Uh, I was literally named after uh, the, the King David that, that shows up here in 2 Samuel. Um, as, a, as a kid, I remember sitting in church when sermons got boring, as they tend to do from time to time. Um, I would pull out my Bible, and I would flip to either the back of the Bible, where there was all the color maps of the missionary journeys and things like that. I really liked looking at those. Or I'd flip to the books of Samuel, and I'd read about the, the kings of Israel, because those stories were really interesting and exciting to me. Uh, so as, as you can imagine, I was really on board with this plan to preach. And then uh, Justin had emailed me, and he said, 2 Samuel 11, that's, that's what we're, we're up uh, up for on the week that, that he asked me to preach. And so I looked up 2 Samuel 11, and I thought, really? Uh, these are the, the most uh, despicable, disappointing events that occur in the life of my childhood hero. Uh, and and of, of all the stories that are out there, you want me to talk about David's sin and his downfall? Um, so honestly, I was a little disappointed. But let me tell you, nothing will force you to learn more about what the Bible says in an in-your-face way than preparing to talk to other people about it. Uh, reading about and reflecting on David's sin here in 2 Samuel 11 uh, really made me think about and confront the sin in my own life. Uh, I hope it'll do that for you too. Not because I want everyone to walk out of church uh, reminded of all the things that you do wrong, uh, but really because when we're committed to following Christ, we need to be paying attention to the sin that's in our own life, not ignoring it. We need to understand how to fight back against it. We need to commit to leaving it behind. We need to do this because when we can evict that sin from our hearts, we create space for Jesus to fill us with the love, joy, and peace that can only come from him. Ultimately, I ended up getting so excited about looking closer uh, at this uh, part of David's life that I uh, felt a little bummed that I wasn't going to be able to finish the story. 2 Samuel 11 really feels like the first half of an important story. And so I asked Justin if I could uh, perhaps uh, teach the, the second half of the story as well. And so he said yes. So uh, we'll be uh, taking a look at 2 Samuel 12 uh, again in two weeks uh, because next week's the away game and we don't have uh, service as usual here. Many of you already know the story of David and Bathsheba here in 2 Samuel 11. Um, other than perhaps the story of Samson and Delilah, uh, this is the closest equivalent we have to a biblical soap opera. And, and people have always, all throughout history, loved to hear stories with a heavy dose of drama. But reflect for, with me for just a moment. Why does this story even appear in the Bible? There are several parts of this story that David could surely have kept out of official records if he had chosen to do so. Remember, he was king. And there's a number of personal interactions and things like that that take place uh, as a part of this story that really only he could have contributed to the tale. And as Justin pointed out last week, if you take a look at the contemporary account of the nation of Israel at this time from 1 Chronicles 20, you'll see nothing at all about the story of David and Bathsheba, but instead just a far more orderly and militaristic account of how Joab led the Israelite army in a successful campaign against the city of Rabbah, which is basically what frames the story. 
So we'll see more evidence for this uh, in two weeks when we look at the second half of the story. But ultimately, I believe a record of this story exists because David wanted it to. And how does that just make sense? I mean, I don't want to tell anyone about the sin in my life, much less create a permanent and lasting record of that sin that's going to be read by millions of people for thousands of years. But one thing we know about David is that he had a heart for God. And in, from this story, we can learn that a heart for God means exposing your sin to the light. For David, that meant creating a detailed and permanent record of the worst thing he ever did. Let's walk through that story together. So the setting here as we, we step into 2 Samuel 11, uh, we have seen that uh, Saul has died. David was anointed king. He pulled together a fractured nation. He established a system of governance based in Jerusalem. He brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And he led the nation of Israel through a series of great military victories that helped establish a relative sense of security. He's proven himself to be an exceptional military leader, religious leader, and governmental leader. Only one really major stronghold of the Ammonites remains to be taken. So picking up here in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now David's previous successes had come through his direct leadership of his people. Joab, David's nephew, has proven himself to be shrewd and violent. He's an effective military leader. But while he's proven himself capable of leading David's army, he really shows little of David's devotion to God. Quite simply, David should still have been on the battlefield. His presence was important to the army of Israel, but he chose instead to stay home. David is somewhere between his late 30s and his early 50s at this point in the story. He probably felt like he deserved a break after all of the good that he had just accomplished. So then verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So with this voluntary downtime that David has chosen, his staying at Jerusalem instead of going out with the army, uh, we find that he spends the afternoon on his couch. As do I. Uh, he then gets bored, uh, and he paces on top of the palace. From there, he happens to see a beautiful woman in a moment of vulnerability. Uh, the palace in Jerusalem was uh, located uh, at this time uh, a little bit up on a hill um, with the, the next, there you go. You can kind of see this is sort of what it would look like. He'd have the ability to kind of look out over uh, the rest of, of the city um, as he happens to be on his palace just based on how it's located. Now remember, David already has many wives and concubines at this point in his life. But, as Justin has pointed out to us, romantic and familial relationships have always been and will always be David's downfall. Despite having numerous women with whom he is already in a relationship, they're living in the very house he's occupying, he still sees someone new and beautiful and decides to try to find out more about her. We really see here this image of uh, a mentality of an out-of-control king. 
Whomever he asks the question responds in an interesting way when he says, uh, who, who is this woman? In the culture, it would be normal to simply introduce a woman while indicating who her father is, or maybe uh, who her grandfather is as well. But this, we can presume, servant uh, responded to David uh, in a way t- as to, to make sure that David's aware that this woman is married. And not just married, but married to someone who is known to David, someone who is a friend, someone who's important in his army. It seems likely the servant already kind of knows what David's thinking and is subtly trying to warn him off, but it ultimately is unsuccessful. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Whoops. Some people may look at this story and point out Bathsheba's guilt or innocence based on either her complicity uh, or her subjection to coercion. I don't really think there's enough information here to make any sort of judgment like that. Uh, She may have been forced to have this relationship with David. Note the use of the term took uh, and recognize that in this culture you wouldn't say no when the king uh, demanded something. Or she may have been lonely with her husband away at war. Uh, bathing where she could be seen in an effort to attract attention. We don't know, and ultimately it doesn't matter to anyone but God. This story is about David's sin. If you remember back to 1 Samuel 8, God gives the nation of Israel a warning through the prophet Samuel uh, when the nation of Israel was, was looking to acquire kings. That warning, in short, was that a king would take from them. He would take their sons, he'd take their daughters, he'd take their servants, their crops, their flocks, etc. The use of took, as it describes how David took Bathsheba, is surely intentional here as a reminder back to God's warning to the nation of Israel. Even the good king of the nation of Israel would take from the people, just as God said it would happen. Note how clearly the Bible makes it that Bathsheba was purifying herself from uncleanness. Uh, The point of why this is stated here is to make sure that we as the reader know that she could not have been pregnant at the time. That's an important part of this narrative. She and presumably David were both well aware of this fact when they engaged in their affair. Uh, After their affair, it's obviously no longer the case. She's now pregnant. Her husband has inconveniently been at war at a location that's around 60 to 90 miles away from Jerusalem, It's a really difficult road between Rabbah and Jerusalem, uh, and he's been away for far too long of a time for for this child to potentially be his. So now David's sin, that had been semi-secret, remember at least some servants and messengers had to have been involved uh, in order for the tryst to happen, Uh, but that sin is now going to become a lot more public. The the birth of a child is going to leave some questions unanswered. Now, Let's recognize David could have thrown Bathsheba under the bus, denied responsibility, uh, and just left her to figure it out on her own. But he doesn't do that. It's obvious from the biblical narrative that David really does care for Bathsheba, um, and we see that at, at other points in the story as well. And he really just doesn't want his friend Uriah to find out what he did. So we pick up then in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. 
And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today, and tomorrow also I'll, I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in, the, in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Why is it Uriah the Hittite and not just Uriah? as it tells this story. Uh, that, that The Hittite gets tacked on a lot uh, throughout this story and really anywhere else that Uriah gets mentioned. The Hittites were a Canaanite tribe that were present in the, the land when the nation of Israel uh, first entered the Promised Land. Um, they weren't entirely destroyed, and some of them obviously chose to join with Israel instead of warring against it. Uriah means Yahweh is my light. And so we can pretty safely assume that Uriah is a, a pretty committed follower of God, especially given his behavior in this story. But as the Hittite, he is also commonly identified as coming from a minority ethnicity within the nation of Israel. Anyway, David comes up with a plan. Plan A is to try to create a situation where Uriah might... Uh, if he doesn't have great understanding of medical science or if he's bad at counting, he could reach the conclusion that uh, somehow he is the father of Bathsheba's child. He asked Joab to send Uriah back to Jerusalem. Uh, remember, this isn't an easy trip to take, 60 to 90 miles along a hard road, under the pretense of wanting an update on the war effort at Rabbah. David could care less about what Uriah has to say. He quickly tells him thanks, and encourages him to go home, spend time with your wife, uh, just enjoy the break from the war. But Uriah, he must surely have been tempted. Remember, he's been away at war for a long time. He had a long journey home, and he has this beautiful wife waiting for him at home. But he's too honorable. He views his trip to Jerusalem as a military responsibility, and he refuses to take pleasure for himself when his nation is not at peace and the rest of his fellow soldiers are still on the front line. So David next tries plan B, getting Uriah drunk and pushing him toward home once again. But he still fails. Recognize how far David has fallen at this point. A drunk Uriah more effectively resists a temptation that would compromise his own moral code than a sober David was able to resist the temptation that compromised God's morality. David needs a plan C. Verse 14, 
In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. This is kind of crazy. David actually sends the orders for Uriah to be killed with Uriah back to Joab. This is how much David trusted his friend. Uh, This is a a trustworthy man who won't look at those orders, who won't read those orders, who will maintain secrecy, uh, even though those orders are his own death penalty. Now, Joab, uh, as long as it comes to uh, following orders to kill people, Joab is really good at following orders. Uh, We'll see other places in the Bible where Joab struggles is when David tells him not to kill people. Um, he, He doesn't do that very well. David orchestrates a scenario by which Joab, following David's direct orders, can cause Uriah to be killed in the midst of the battle. By doing so, let's be honest, David ultimately murders Uriah, just as effectively as if it was his own hand holding the sword. Joab puts Uriah in the most dangerous position on the assault on Rabbah, and then he withdraws support from that position, leaving Uriah and several other Israelites hanging out to dry, and they all get killed in this pointless attack. Verse 18. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? But they would sh- shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. I think it's safe to assume that Joab knows, or at least strongly suspects, some of what is going on here. He's known David for a long time. He surely is aware of David's relationship with women. And it's also very possible that he would know Uriah's wife. Uriah is an important man in his army, someone that he's close to as well. I think he also wants David to know that he knows what's going on here. And that's some of the point of this cryptic message that he's he's sending. This explicit mention of a woman being the cause of Abimelech's death in the comparison of events, may have been intended as a barb for David's conscience for letting a woman be the cause of Uriah's death. Ultimately, this appears to be a bit of a turning point in the relationship between David and Joab, which that relationship ultimately ends uh, with Joab betraying David and David orchestrating Joab's execution. Uh, it, It is not an amicable ending. Joab is unhappy that he had to lose some good men by executing a stupid military strategy. This episode is a stain on him as a military commander, uh, just as it's a stain on David's morality. Anticipating that the messenger will worry about the bad news that he has to deliver to David, Joab helps him to prepare for the conversation by uh, helping him walk through some of these questions that he might be able to expect from David. 
Joab compares the foolishness of the operation to the death of Abimelech, the son of Jerebesheth. Jerebesheth is another name for Gideon. Uh, Gideon from the book of Judges. Uh, his son was Abimelech. Um, and Abimelech, uh, when he was a ruler of Israel, uh, he was killed, uh, as Joab describes in this story in Judges 9. He goes too close to a wall, and uh, a woman casts down a stone and kills him. Joab's recalling of these events reinforces how strategically stupid it was to send a group of Israelites so close to the walls of Rabbah. But after Joab hypothesizes all the different ways that David might question the messenger on this uh, tactical stupidity, he prepares him with the one answer he really only needs to have uh, in order to respond to the king. This was all done to accomplish what you asked of me. Uriah the Hittite is now dead. Verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. But then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. David's callous response here included none of the questioning for which Joab had prepared the servant, because ultimately this was the news David was waiting for. Don't worry about it. People die in war sometimes. Keep up the good work. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Understatement. Note that Bathsheba lamented Uriah's death. While there's no indication that David mourned, David was too wrapped up in his sin and pleased with the success of his plan to truly recognize the murder that he had committed at this point. Throughout David's entire life to this point, he has been put in situations where he could have killed other Israelites many times, whether that be Saul and his armies or when he served the Philistines for a while as a mercenary. But he contrived over and over again to try to avoid killing his fellow countrymen. But now he's just murdered one of his own best and most honorable soldiers. Maybe he excused this affront to his own system of morality by the fact that Uriah was a Hittite and not ethnically an Israelite. But still, he surely knew just how wrong his actions were. Regardless, after Bathsheba finishes her mourning, which would typically be about a week, David kindly sees to the goodwill of the widow of his servant Uriah by bringing her into his home as another of his wives. What a good king he looks like from the outside. Or so he'd like for people to think. Perhaps many people were fooled about what happened here. But it's certain that God wasn't. There's more to the story than what's covered here in 2 Samuel 11. We'll pick up with 2 Samuel 12 in two weeks. 
uh, and look at uh, some of the rest of the story as we look at the ideas of repentance and consequences of sin. But for today, there's some important takeaways just from this portion of the account. Remember, David was willing for this account of his sin to be known so that others may learn from him and repent of their own sin. In fact, he wrote in Psalm 51, verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. We will see this more uh, in two weeks when we look a little closer at Psalm 51 here, but this is a psalm that David wrote after this entire account of his sin with Bathsheba. And so he's acknowledging here what, what his goal and purpose is. So let's return to my initial question. Why make a lasting record of this story? First point that I think is is worth noting here. We need to know what sin is. Here's the logical progression. If you love the Lord, then you want to obey him. If you want to obey him, you need to know what he commands. And his commands are what he does and doesn't want you to do. What he doesn't want you to do is sin. And sin is choosing to do things that are against God's ways. If we love the Lord, we need to know the things that will will be against uh, his ways and his instructions. We have to understand our enemy. In this case, the enemy inside of us that wants to rebel against our relationship with our loving creator. As John Owen once said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Have you ever been sinning and weren't really aware of it in the moment? It can actually be a wonderful relief to recognize that the thing that has been subtly eating away at you has actually been sin, and that God is right there with you wanting to see that thing out of your life. This happened to me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, One of our beloved dogs, Scarlet, uh, who we've had for 10 years, got very sick, uh, and we had to rush her to the emergency vet in order to save her life. Once we got her back from the hospital, uh, she still wasn't doing well. Uh, She needed near constant attention, and I was really concerned that she was going to relapse back into the same issue that required her to be hospitalized in the first place. I'll admit that I don't really think caregiving is one of my particular strengths. Um, This whole episode was really stressing me out, and I was really badly struggling with anxiety, uh, which is something that I've, I've fought with for a long time. Fortunately, my wife, Rachel, uh, was able to point me towards a book she's reading. It's called Respectable Sins uh, by Jerry Bridges. And in that book, it talked about uh, the underlying sin that typically accompanies anxiety. It's a desire to control and a lack of trust in a loving God. Now, I know there are different causes and severities of anxiety. Um, I'm not trying to heap condemnation on anyone else who struggles with it. But I know that for me... The underlying cause of my anxiety has a lot to do with my belief that I need to handle things on my own because there's no one there to catch me if I fail. That is sin. Because I'm both elevating my view of myself and diminishing my view of God and his goodness. Recognizing it as a sin didn't immediately eliminate my anxiety but it really helped me understand how to begin dealing with it. Whereas before, I had felt completely helpless under its weight. And the good news is, uh, Scarlett's doing great now. 
Ultimately, Christ offers us freedom from the power of sin. But we need to know what sin is and how it creeps into our lives if we're going to effectively turn it all over to him. Why else make a lasting record of this story? Second point, we need to know how sin works. Temptation to sin isn't a passive thing. The Bible tells us that we have an adversary who is like a lion looking for someone to devour. It's from 1 Peter 5.8. And it tells us that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. It's from James 4.7. And even Paul talks about how he finds himself sinning even though he doesn't want to. That's in Romans 7.15. There is an inclination toward evil within each one of us. And there are external forces that want to see us fall. What are their strategies? C.S. Lewis wrote a really interesting book called The Screwtape Letters. It's a satirical account in which uh, an older demon, Screwtape, sends letters to his less experienced nephew, Wormwood, uh, detailing strategies for corrupting Christianity and causing humans to sin. I think there's some really astute observations uh, that Lewis makes in this account uh, about how sin enters the lives of Christians. And if this is something that you want to learn more about, I encourage you to pick it up sometime. It's a really interesting read. But we can see quite a bit about how sin works its way into our lives through this passage of Scripture we just looked at, too. And I think this is one of the reasons that this story is told in 2 Samuel in so much detail. For example, we can see that sin often starts by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. David should have been where he always had been, leading his armies. This wasn't a Sabbath he was taking. Choosing to do nothing when God would have us do something can open the door for sin to enter our lives. We don't need to meet the world's definition of busyness. You'll never do enough to accomplish that. But our lives should be a rhythm of work and rest that is pleasing to the Lord. And I think we all know that there are places and times we should not be if we want to try to avoid getting entangled in sin. Simply reflecting on your own history of sin should allow you to recognize some situations that you would do better to avoid, just as it has me. Second, we can see that temptation isn't a sin, but it is a danger. David's initial observation of Bathsheba likely wasn't itself a sin, but he fell down a slippery slope quickly from that point. If David hadn't been wandering around on the roof, looking out over the city, the events in this story simply would not have happened. J.D. Greer makes what I think is a good observation here when he says, it is far easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. What a a helpful thing to reflect on. To willingly subject ourselves to temptation in an area of our lives in which we struggled with sin before is foolish pride. If you know that seeing or hearing something is going to nudge your heart towards sin, take steps to avoid the thing altogether. Use technology tools to limit your internet access at certain times of the day. Delete apps off your phone. Avoid conversations where people are gossiping about others Invite accountability from others into areas of your life that would otherwise go unobserved. Your odds of successfully avoiding sin increase dramatically if you can avoid temptation. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer captures the idea of the moment of temptation really well in his aptly named book, Temptation, when he says, In our members there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The powers of real discrimination and of decision are taken from us. Therefore, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation, in the flesh there is one command, flee. Flee fornication, flee idolatry, flee youthful lusts, flee the lusts of the world. Every struggle against lust in one's own strength is doomed to failure. Temptation is so dangerous to us because of how it can temporarily make us forget about our commitment to God. Finally, the the other thing that I think uh, this passage can teach us about how sin works is that sin inspires more sin. In this story, David transitions from a sin that affected only his own relationship with God, the lust in his own heart, into a series of additional sins that ultimately led all the way up to murder. How could this happen? There would likely have been no temptation that could have in one step moved David from innocent to murderer. In fact, as we look back at the the story of David to this point, there were several times where he was directly tempted to murder. Saul, the man who was trying to kill him, David had multiple opportunities to kill him, and David resisted that temptation to murder. I teach civil engineering, so my thinking here goes to the story of the St. Francis Dam in northern L.A. County in California in 1928. One night at about midnight, the dam experienced a sudden and catastrophic failure, unleashing a 140-foot-tall flood wave. It's 12.4 billion gallons of water that ended up killing over 400 people in its downstream path. It's important to note that the dam was only two years old at the time that it failed. And it had been inspected by its designer for safety mere hours before the collapse. Shortly after its construction, a small leak began under the foundation on one side of the dam. That that leak scoured out more and more of the foundation, causing additional small points of damage, small cracks to, to begin to form in that portion of the dam. The reality is that the dam was compromised long before the collapse happened. But from looking at the outside of it, there only appeared to be some minor issues, which is what the designer concluded a few hours before it fell apart entirely. This is what unchecked sin can do in our lives. It erodes our conscience, it erodes our morality, it erodes our decision-making, leading to additional and more egregious sins as we try to cover up what we've done, yet still create favorable outcomes for ourselves. David asking for Bathsheba's identity produced the first leak under the dam. The dam collapsed with the murder of Uriah. If you know that your dam's foundation has some leaks in it due to sins that you haven't addressed, 
the best time to repent is right now. Finally, why else make a lasting record of this story? Uh, I think that we need to know who sins. And the answer to this is, is pretty straightforward. All. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 Even David, the man after God's own heart, experienced Bonhoeffer's moments at which God was quite unreal to him, giving in to a string of terrible temptations. But this is not the conclusion of defeat that it might seem. God is not done with David at this point. God loved David before, during, and after his sin. And while there ended up being serious and devastating consequences, there was also a restoring of the relationship between God and David. If David could be known as a man after God's own heart, which we see in 1 Samuel 13, 14, despite the grievous sins of adultery, deceit, and murder, then there is hope for each one of us through Christ Jesus to repent of our sins and be children of God. Bringing our sins to the light, confessing them to other people, can similarly help others recognize that their own story has the potential for redemption. This is the power of the gospel at work. Because of the story of 2 Samuel 11, I hope that you can leave today with a greater understanding of the temptation and sin in your own life and a greater desire to leave it behind. In two weeks, we'll take a closer look at the consequences of David's sin, as well as his path to repentance and reconciliation with God. But please don't wait until then if you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you to repent today. The blessing that comes through letting Jesus remove your burden of guilt and shame is far too wonderful for you to delay. Acts 3, 19-20 tells us, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your words. Uh, thank you for this story of David's sin in 2 Samuel 11. Thank you for uh, the model that it can be to us of uh, being able to see the ways that the, the devil uh, would, would try to corrupt us, the ways that our, our own hearts want to stray from you. Lord, I just pray uh, that as, as you use this verse to, to help me confront some sin in my own life, I pray that you would just uh, help those who are listening as well to, to recognize ways that they can turn away from the thing that's trying to destroy them and turn back to you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.